everybody. Magnus here. You know, as a couple of days ago, I had sort of a uh, urge to watch Batman Begins again. See, I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. And, you know, there are reasons for that, many of which are directly related to what assholes that the uh, Chris Nolan Batman fans acted like for a lot of years there. It just soured a lot of things for me, is what I'm saying. So, in any case, I had a uh, temptation to watch Batman Begins again just a couple of days ago. I guess with an eye on how does it hold up all of these years later to somebody who was never really all that fond of it in the first place, right? And I gotta say, in retrospect, it really is amazing what I assume is studio interference, it's amazing what that can accomplish. You see, when he was making Batman Begins, Chris Nolan wasn't allowed to be a totally pretentious cock. Warner Brothers' attitude, at least not right away, it wasn't, right away, Mr. Nolan. Yes, sir, Mr. Nolan. We'll do it right now, Mr. Nolan. That just wasn't where their heads were at. My impression is they didn't really care very much about Batman Begins so long as it was commercial enough and it came in on time and on or under budget. Makes a big difference to the final product. Still, the plot's pretty straightforward. The actors are all as invested in, their, in these characters as they'd ever be. Nolan still gave a damn and if the script is heavy on that kind of tin dialogue that George Lucas would probably approve of, written by David Goyer, well, you take the bad with the good, I guess. Now, is Batman Begins my Batman? No, not really. But it's an interesting enough film if you view it as a standalone piece. As part of a trilogy, Honestly, it's nowhere near of a piece with the rest of the trilogy insofar as style goes, but I guess that's really neither here nor there. If you can overlook the melodramatic dialogue and uh, all of those way over-the-top origin scenes and the stylistic clash that Batman Begins represents compared to the subsequent sequels, that really damned aggravating ADD rapid-fire MTV-style editing and all that other bullshit, yeah, Batman Begins isn't bad. Not great, and I really resent this film's legacy, but it's not bad. I still consider it to be a live-action Elseworlds, though. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
and welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows better than anybody else, because I'm awesome. Anyway, I got a real nut smasher of a story to talk about this time around. See, kiddies, once upon a time, a new Batman comic book coming out wasn't a monthly occurrence. And there weren't zillions of Batman comics on the market. You pretty much had two. Batman and Detective Comics. Apart from the odd miniseries here and there, mostly that was it. That's why it was kind of a big deal back in 1989 when DC debuted Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, which it claimed was the first new Batman title to come out since 1940 or some shit. Because I guess Batman Family Number 1 from 1975 doesn't count. Or something. Hell if I know. Legends of the Dark Knight had no single creative team under it. Instead, Legends of the Dark Knight was used kind of as a vehicle to allow creators to stretch their wings and tell the stories they wanted to tell, but with, at best, dubious or negligible impact on continuity. So, to put it another way, Legends of the Dark Knight was a preview of what the comic book industry would become by 2009. Anyway, Legends of the Dark Knight eventually became something of a mixed bag, especially later on in its run when it seemed like the title had kind of lost its way. But my argument is that a lot of the stuff from before issue number 100 is pretty good. Now, granted, a good bit of it is pretty mediocre. But others, uh, other things, man, those are some good, good fucking stories. So, and... We'll be talking about one of those today. Obviously. Otherwise, I wouldn't have sat here running my mouth about Legends of the Dark Knight this whole time. So, come on, people, keep up. Anyway, the story's called Prey. P-R-E-Y. Prey. Now, it was originally published in Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 11 through 15, from September of 1990 to February of 1991, because... Comic book pros could hit monthly deadlines back then. Like a lot of early Legends of the Dark Knight stories, Batman in this book mostly goes up against mobsters, serial killers, street thugs, and things like that. You don't see too many costumed supervillains, at least at first. Prey is sort of an exception to that, because the big bad of this story is actually a psychologist and his main lackey does indeed wear a costume, so... Hmm. But anyway, so, that's that stuff. And so, into the summaries we go. This is Batman, Prey. Writer is Doug Mensch. Artists are Paul Gulacy and Terry Austin. Letterer is John Costanza. Colorist is Steve Olive. Editor is Andy. E- editors are Andy Helfer, Kevin Dooley, 
And for the trade paperback, Bob Cahan. Can. Con. Con! I'm not actually sure. In any case, Batman, Prey. Originally printed in Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 11 to 15. Prey opens with Batman disrupting a police sting operation by shaking down a drug dealer for information on his supplier, a gangster named The Fish, before the police could make their move on him. The officer in charge of the sting, Sergeant Max Court, tries to apprehend Batman but fails. Incensed, Court reports to his superior, Captain James Gordon, and demands action against Batman for undermining his work and the morale of the police officers. Gordon argues that Batman actually helps the police and helps morale by supporting them on the streets. Their arguments cut short as Gordon leaves for a late night news show appearance. On the news show, Gordon is interviewed alongside Gotham's current mayor, Wilson Koss, Kaus, Cause, K-A-U-S-S, I'm actually not really sure how to pronounce that, Cause, and prominent psychologist Dr. Hugo Strange on the subject of Batman. Strange accurately theorizes that Batman must be motivated by a traumatic loss wrought by violent crime, but goes on to claim that Batman's costumed vigilantism is primarily an exercise in power and control for his own benefit rather than anyone else's. Gordon rebukes Strange's analysis, explaining that the costume is simply to scare criminals and Batman's trying, he's honestly trying to help Gotham. But Mayor Cause sides with Strange and takes a hard stance against Batman, announcing on air that he's forming a police task force to apprehend Batman and assigning Gordon to head it. Impressed by his apparent expertise on Batman, Cause offers Strange a job as a police consultant, which he accepts. As a caveat, Strange demands full access to all police records, beginning with notable murder cases in Gotham, so he can start profiling the caped crusader and unravel his true identity. Reluctant to fulfill his new responsibilities to the task force, Gordon secretly withholds the complete police records from Strange. Gordon also recruits Court to work under him, believing that the gung-ho sergeant is ill-equipped to keep up with the Dark Knight. However, Court proves that Gordon underestimated his determination to rid Gotham of Batman by recruiting a band of like-minded officers to join him in the task force without Gordon's permission. Gord, uh, Court and his men find Batman at the Fish's hideout in the midst of apprehending the drug peddler. They immediately open fire on Batman, causing him to flee and letting the fish escape. Meanwhile, the depths of Doctor Strange's own unstable psychosis and obsession with Batman are revealed as he's shown alone in his penthouse, dressed up in a makeshift Batman costume, lamenting to a female mannequin about the simultaneous envy and hatred he feels toward, towards Batman for the power and freedom he wields. Batman returns to Wayne Manor, demoralized by the previous night's outing. His butler, Alfred, informs him that Mayor Cause has invited Bruce Wayne to a dinner party and Doctor Strange is also expected to attend. At the party, the mayor's daughter, Catherine, expresses admiration for Batman and ends up arguing with Strange, who asks her out on a date but is turned down. At the police station, 
Gordon and his comrades examine equipment Batman left behind the previous night and arrange to have their findings sent to Strange, but Gordon keeps their report stashed in his office. Nonetheless, Strange begins to make regular press announcements about the menace posed by Batman and turns Gotham against him. The media also report the appearance of a new prowler in Gotham, a costumed burglar dubbed the Catwoman, who they claim is Batman's criminal accomplice to the annoyance of both Batman and Catwoman. Batman and Gordon secretly meet to discuss their current predicament. Batman's work is being derailed by court's interference and Strange's smear campaign, while Gordon's own career is in jeopardy unless he can deliver Batman to the authorities. Gordon tells Batman he'll try to stall court and Strange as long as he can, but suggests that Batman work to improve his public standing so the mayor will, will reconsider his stance. Batman agrees and Gordon promises to contact him later. Batman tracks the fish to a new hideout and captures him. In broad daylight, Batman hands the criminal to Sergeant Court as a peace offering and asks for a truce, but Court interprets the gesture as another taunt against his incompetence and opens fire, attempting to arrest Batman again. Gordon later calls a meeting with Batman on the rooftop of police headquarters by placing a bat-shaped stencil on the building's searchlight, unaware that Court is spying on them from an adjacent building. Furious, Court breaks into Gordon's office and uncovers evidence of his collusion with Batman, including the data he was hiding from Strange. Gordon takes the evidence directly to Strange, who deduces that Batman must be a man of wealth, and asks Court to help take down Batman and Gordon. The next evening, Catherine Cause reluctantly goes on a date with Strange as a courtesy to her father. When Catherine ends the date because of Strange's endless ranting about Batman, he snaps and threatens her. At home, Strange calls Court over to discuss their plans and Court agrees to let Strange hypnotize him, under the pretense of alleviating stress. In reality, Strange uses hypnosis to make Court believe he can be like Batman, but better. Strange gives Court a makeshift costume, complete with a mask and a pair of samurai swords, before sending him home. Court begins to drive home, but suddenly feels a compulsion to put on the equipment and hunt for criminals. Court ends up at a biker bar where a suspected arms dealer frequents. After viciously attacking the bikers inside, he, he tracks the arms dealer back to his home and nearly beats him to death before leaving him at the police station with, with a note saying, the Night Scourge wants to help too. The media pick up the story about Night Scourge, and Doctor Strange publicly denounces Night Scourge's violent exploits as a result of Batman's existence. Court himself is pleased with his work, believing that it proves he's just as good as Batman, but admits he'll need to face Batman to prove that he is better. Hunting for Batman as Night Scourge, Court happens upon Catwoman, about to commit another burglary. Court attacks her, but Batman intervenes before he can kill her and soundly defeats Court. Disillusioned, Court flees from Batman, who's forced to go, uh, who's forced to let him go after Catwoman blinds, blindsides him with a pipe, afraid he might attack her too. Court returns to Strange's penthouse, where he's hypnotized further. Under Strange's orders, Court breaks into Mayor Cause's home and assaults him and Catherine while dressed as Batman. Pretending to be Batman, 
court taunts the mayor and kidnaps his daughter, threatening to kill her if he doesn't disband the task force. The next day, Mayor Cause institutes a shoot-to-kill order against Batman and demands Catherine's safe return within five days or Gordon will be fired from the police force. Batman spends the next evening being hunted by the police across Gotham. After a lengthy foot chase, Batman deduces that Strange must have, must have a hand in framing him. Batman confronts Strange in his penthouse and demands to know the identity of the Night Scourge and his role in Catherine Cause's kidnapping. Strange taunts Batman without revealing any information and hits him with a hallucinogenic gas that causes him to relive the night his parents were murdered. Completely disoriented, Batman falls off a balcony, but not before audibly crying out for his mother and father, which gives Strange the final clue he needs to piece together Batman's identity. Batman narrowly survives the fall from the penthouse, but remains in the throw of the hallucinogen. He believe, Believing he's once again a little boy and is being chased by his parents' killer, Batman runs from a police officer trying to arrest him, escapes by jumping into the sewers, and nearly drowns as he's washed out to sea. Batman wakes up the next morning under a pier, bruised and battered. When he walks back onto shore, he's attacked by a mob of civilians. Batman manages to escape, but is shocked by how much the public hates him and how little fear they showed. When Batman returns to the manor, he finds Alfred unconscious, the victim of assault. He's also greeted by what appears to be his mother and father in the dining room. The apparitions of his parents begin to taunt him for being a failure and blaming their deaths on him. As he runs around the manor in fear, the voices and figures of his parents seem to chase him from room to room. Alfred, who's regained consciousness, tries to calm Bruce, explaining that the figures that he thinks are his parents are just elaborate mannequins with tape recorders placed inside them. But Bruce, still suffering from the resi residual effects of the hallucinogen, strikes him and flees to the safety of the Batcave where he collapses in exhaustion. After cloistering himself within the Batcave for three days, Bruce regains his bearings but remains shaken by the visions he's experienced. He considers whether the path of Batman is one that his parents would have approved of, or if it's simply the course of an insane man, as Strange has suggested. After reflecting, Bruce rationalizes that being Batman represents an act of sanity and order that defies the madness and chaos represented by crime and injustice. Remembering that today's the final day of the deadline against Gordon, Batman calls him and they prepare for a final confrontation with Strange and Night Scourge, who's embarked on a murderous vigilante spree. Leaving in his newly assembled Batmobile, Batman goes to Strange's penthouse and finds him once again dressed in a Batman costume and conversing with a mannequin. Batman appeals to Strange's ego and lets him gloat about staging the frame-up, but when Strange turns the subject towards Batman's true identity, Batman simply plays ignorant to Strange's ravings, saying he has no idea what Strange is talking about, and points out that points out the doctor's an erratic and bizarre behavior as evidence that it's he, Strange, who's insane and his profiling work is based on delusion. Gordon and a uniformed police officer then burst through Strange's door and Batman reveals that he's been recording the entire meeting, including Strange's confession to the kidnapping. 
The officer finds Catherine tied up in another room, but otherwise unharmed. When Gordon attempts to arrest Strange, the doctor runs outside and finds himself in front of more cops. Mistaking him for Batman because of his costume, they act on Mayor Cause's shoot-to-kill orders and open fire. Strange is hit numerous times before falling into a river. Presuming Strange to be dead, Batman goes in search of Night Scourge, who he now knows to be Max Court. Batman finds Court, now completely unhinged from sanity, and they have another duel. Thanks to some surprise help from Catwoman, Batman defeats Court, who flees to police headquarters, still in his Night Scourge costume. When his fellow officers pull their guns on him, Court unmasks himself and goes on a tirade against Batman and Gordon, who have followed him there. Court draws a gun to shoot Gordon, but is immediately killed by the other officers. The story comes to a close with Gordon explaining to Mayor Cause how Strange and Court were responsible for kidnapping his daughter, and it was the Batman who saved her. Grateful, Cause disbands the anti-Batman task force so the police can concentrate on the real criminals. Gordon meets with Batman one more time to inform him that Stranger's body still hasn't been found. Gordon also adds that while the mayor and public have mostly forgiven Batman, there will always be people who resent and demonize him in some way because of what he does. But either way, Gordon believes that Gotham needs Batman, so he'll continue to work with him. Alright, I should start by saying that I freaking love this story. I first read it when I was a kid, and then as now, I was absolutely captivated by Paul Gulacy's art. His work has a very realistic vibe to it, relatively speaking, and he's got a way of making all of Batman's martial arts moves look real. You see, I think anybody can draw somebody punching somebody else in the face. It's not that hard to do, I'm sure, but most of us have seen enough martial arts stuff over the years to know that you need a certain posture and balance in order to do the job right. And I'm telling you, nobody does that as well as Paul Gulacy, if you ask me. All of Batman's strikes and kicks, they all look absolutely painful because Gulacy knew to give Batman the right sense of balance and footwork to all of his moves. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's fucking awesome. I love it. Now, the coloring's done by Steve Olive. Now, some of you are going to recognize that name and some of you won't, but the short version is that he was an early pioneer of using computers to do to uh, color comics. It's standard operating procedure these days, but back then that kind of thing really was cutting edge. I'm, I mention it here because aspects of Prey's coloring job look very modern, while other parts look dated as hell. People, people call coloring like this 90s chic, but I kind of like it. The, the coloring isn't distracting, but at the same time it's a lot more sophisticated than standard coloring techniques of the time would have been. I mean, yeah, some parts of the coloring job look cheesy by modern standards, but there's a lot more about the coloring that holds up than there is that doesn't, so it all works for me, and 
all of this is to say, I think this story is better for Steve Olive coloring it. Now, I've gone through all of this. I've kind of saved the best for last. I'm sort of a Doug Mensch fanboy. I think Mensch is incredibly underrated in the grander scheme of things for his take on Batman. He doesn't get the same love that other writers do, and that's a damn shame because he deserves it. And this story is good proof for why. Mensch knew that he had to contrast this story against the mainstream Batman and Detective Comics. So, on the one hand, it's a lot darker and grittier, with fewer standard superhero elements. But, on the other hand, Mensch doesn't go overboard with it. There's no cursing, no TNA, not really, uh, no over-the-top gore or violence or anything like that. It's just got a noticeably darker tone. This story does, has a noticeably darker tone to it than what you'd see in regular Batman titles at the time. You see, a writer like Doug Mensch doesn't need to throw a bunch of useless bullshit into a story in order to somehow earn the mature reader's label. He can do it just fine without that stuff. The most interesting part of the story, though, is how Mensch presents different opinions on what drives Batman. Batman eventually concludes on his own that his actions are those of a sane person reacting to insanity and reacting to injustice, but honestly, I think the jury's still out on that by the time the story's over, and I always have. In point of fact, I've always thought Hugo Strange came a lot closer to identifying what motivates Batman than Batman himself does. Hugo Strange believes that Batman does what he does because he needs to impose order. And that's something that he does for his own psychological benefit. Otherwise, as Strange himself points out, why hasn't Bruce Wayne joined the police force? Or bought his way into the mayor's office and cleaned house that way? There are any number of ways Bruce could have accomplished his ends, and most of them are a hell of a lot more legal than the path he ultimately chose. And this this gets down to the nitty-gritty. This is why I don't think of uh, Batman as a hero in the usual sense. He does what he does because he finds it personally fulfilling. It's not a completely altruistic thing for him. Hell, it's not even a mostly altruistic thing. But, anyway. Something else. Before production got underway for The Dark Knight Rises, there was speculation aplenty that I can remember that Chris Nolan would base at least some of the story around Prey. Now, obviously that ended up not being even remotely true, but that was all... That was the gossip at the time, and... Honestly, I think that would have been a better story for The Dark Knight Rises than what we actually got. This Batman is already vaguely in the same type of realistic world as Chris Nolan's films, but with slight modifications, this would have been a better send-off for the Nolan Batman than The Dark Knight Rises is. 
And I'm not saying this to bash on Nolan either. If you like his movies, good for you. I'm happy for you. I just think those first rumors about the movie would have been a better final product than the actual final product. Now, before you accuse me of being some kind of Nolan hater or anything like that, let me just put my cards on the table. Is Chris Nolan's version of Batman the kind uh, that I prefer? Is this the, the depiction of Batman that I, that I enjoy the most? Obviously not. And I think at this point, I couldn't deny that even if I wanted to. Now, at the same time, I don't think his movies are completely bad. You know, people rag on The Dark Knight Rises, specifically how long it takes for, uh, for Batman to actually show up on screen. You, if you go around a lot of different message boards and all of that sort of stuff, that's a very common gripe that a lot of people have. It took Batman fucking forever to finally show up on screen, in costume, doing his thing. All right, and I'm going off notes here, so um, I, like I said, it's just it's important to me that I don't get labeled some kind of a hater. All right, and that's been a very common thing. All right, uh, people, some people out there just, I guess, the, I guess the best way to put it is they just resent how long it takes for for Batman to finally show up. It's something like 40 minutes or something like that. Now, The Dark Knight Rises takes place about uh, eight years after The Dark Knight. Now, that either works for you or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I got nothing. I can't help you, all right? But once you accept the fact that it takes place eight years later, there's nothing that you can do about it. It's written in stone. I think it's actually a little bit easier to accept how long it takes Batman to get back into the game. For me, the first 40 or so minutes of that film, I don't think it would be accurate to say that I eat it up with a spoon, I'm so com- I'm just totally in love with it, and all that stuff, but I do really enjoy it. In fact, I enjoy that a hell of a lot more than, than what comes next. Um, in general, I don't think that you know, The Dark Knight Rises is shit on a stick or anything like that. I don't think it's everything that it could have been. Even going by, you know, what has come before, I still think it could have been better than it is. But man, there's something about the first 40 or so minutes of that movie with Bruce... See, I want to be careful on how I say this because I don't like the idea of uh, of Batman so easily giving up. I mean, he's had girlfriends innumerable die in his arms in the comics, and to my recollection, none of them have ever made him hang up the cape. But, again, once you buy into that, once you can somehow convince yourself of that, that Batman basically became a shut-in and a hermit, a hermit uh, because Rachel Dawes died, once you can, once you can wrap your head around that, everything else becomes a a whole lot easier. Somehow, this chick just, she, her passing just made it all, made it all go away for Bruce. And there's something about the first 40 or so minutes where Bruce is just sort of aimless. He's hopeless. He's directionless. He doesn't know what he's doing. 
and he doesn't know how to continue living his life. And I just kind of like that. And so, you know, I, why am I mentioning this? Well, my fear is that I'm going to get labeled as some kind of a, you know, Nolan basher or something like that. And I don't, look, are his movies for me? No. Or his Batman movies aren't. His, his non-Batman movies, actually, I think are phenomenal. But his Batman films just don't do it for me. But at the same time, I don't have the same kind of irrational hatred that I've seen some people have. I mean, I've been to some message boards. And, you know, guys, I'm the guy that defended Batman forever. I'm the guy that defended Batman and Robin. I'm even the same guy who likes Batman Forever and Batman and Robin more than I like Chris Nolan's films. That's me. I'm that guy. But some of the bile that people have for Chris Nolan's movies, some people, I'm not talking about you, Scott Gardner, I promise, if you're listening. I'm not talking about you. But there, there's, a, there's a breed of fan out there that were my God. God, the pendulum on those movies has swung so far the other way now. <clears throat> it, it's just fucking insane. Anyway, so I don't want to be seen as that kind of emotionally unbalanced freak. All right, I, I don't want that to be me. I don't want anyone to think of me like that. No, I don't like Chris Nolan's Batman movies. No, they will never be at the top of my list. No, I don't. Even, I, I think, in fact, they're actually pretty fucking overrated as far as these things go. But my. God, the things that some people say about these things. <clears throat> and I don't want to be seen as that guy. All right? So whenever I say that Prey would have made a better third Nolan Batman film than the actual one that we got, the last thing I want is for his fans to think that I'm some kind of a hater or a contrarian or something like that. Because believe me, I'm not. I think eat, whether it's Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, or The Dark Knight Rises, all three of them have a few good points. They've got a few good points to them. No, they are not my Batman. They will never be my Batman. I have a very specific vision of what Batman is. Chris Nolan's movies, more often than not, have nothing to do with it, but there are occasions aplenty when some just some really cool shit happens. Here's a good example. In The Dark Knight, you've got that, you've got that bit where Batman basically fucking flies to China, beats the shit out of, Lo, out of Lao's bodyguards and everything, kidnaps Lao, drags his ass back to Gotham City, and all but hand-delivers him to, um, to, uh, to, to Gordon. I loved that sequence, because to me, that is pure Batman. No deals, no, no apologies, no excuses, no regrets. That is Batman. That's what Batman would do. He would fucking fly to China, find his guy, beat the piss out of him, fly him back to Gotham City, and deliver him back to the police. He would do that. And so, like I said, no, those movies are, generally speaking, not my blend. But to say there's nothing redeeming about them at all, whatsoever, I'm just not prepared to say that. Okay, so, please, believe me, I am not a hater. So that's enough of that. Now, this whole story, pray. This whole story was later compiled as a trade paperback. So even if you can't find the original comics, which should be easy enough because I, as far as I know, they're dirt cheap. These aren't, these are not valuable comics. 
the trade would be a good alternative for you. And I think I, I should also mention that Doug Mensch later wrote a sequel to Prey called Terror. But it's been ages since I read it, so I probably shouldn't comment on that too much. But I do know that there is a sequel out there. So, next. Um, and finally, this is one of my favorite Batman stories ever. This is, to me, it gets so deep into Batman's psychology. And at, and at the same time, it, it presents him with equal opposites. And that's what any good Batman story needs to do. It needs to take two or three aspects of his character and then present opposition that meets those things. So on the, uh, on the scientific and psychological, I guess, intellectual level, the big bad of this, uh, of this story is, is undoubtedly uh, Hugo Strange. And, and there's a sense in which he's sort of Batman's equal opposite in this story. The other side is the is Batman as a I can't say brawler, but as a but as a fighter, as an ass kicker. Max Court is he's basically Batman's opposition. I can't really say he's in any way equivalent to Batman because Batman pretty much kicks his ass. But that I guess what I'm saying is that works for me. You know, anytime you can put Batman up against people who are his opposite numbers, it works for me. And that's why this story works for me. And, you know, between the art, the rock-solid characterization, and the writing, I mean, you can always count on Doug Minch to, to uh, deliver a good product when it comes to that. I give this my highest recommendation. If you've never read this, this storyline before, read it. It's worth it. I love it. And I think you'll love it, too. Uh, again, it's... Batman Prey, and this uh, is Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 11 to 15. I promise you'll like it. So, so that is basically that. So I'm going to take a break and uh, be right back after these messages. started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman, Superman in, in the, the Bronze Age. Age.
My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every week I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. And this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultraman... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. bit of feedback to go through here. This first email comes from my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime, who's dated June the 3rd, which should just about tell you how behind I am on feedback here. But anyway, June the 3rd, 2014. Subject line reads, Spider-Man 3 review and likely a lot of other things. Fanboy Miss Prime writes, Greetings, Trentus U. Magnus. Yep, I agree with you on Spider-Man. He's not one of my favorite characters, and that seems to be honestly the Avengers and X-Men. 
and is part of why Spider-Man in my rewrite of Secret Invasion only had a small part. Well, that, and I use the fact that Peter hung up the costume for several months between One More Day and Brand New Day, so a scroll could take his place on the Avengers as I didn't want to deal with the utter smashing of continuity. As for the Spider-Man films, I... well... I honestly haven't seen any since the first Raimi Spider-Man film. Not out of any distaste with them, just not really in the mood. So, actually, let me just put this email on pause here and say, you know, look, I am not the world's biggest uh, devotee of the uh, Spider-Man, the Raimi Spider-Man films, or for that matter, like you've said, the Spider-Man as a character in general, but... I really do see value in Spider-Man 2 and, to a greater extent, with Spider-Man 3. Honestly, I think the first Spider-Man movie is so transparently derivative of uh, Superman the movie that, honestly, it just sort of detracts uh, from the whole thing for me. That and the fact that, honestly, I just think that movie is just really overrated. You know, I mean, look, it's not that I dislike the first Spider-Man movie. I, I, I like it. I just happen to think it's it's just gotten praise way out of proportion to how good it actually is. And that's the part that that I don't I just don't get. Spider-Man 2, I think might have benefited from being a little bit shorter, you know, and and having had like, I don't know, more Spider-Man in it, maybe. But otherwise, I don't know. I think it's I think it's all right, but Spider-Man 3, I think, really is actually worth everything that had come before, you know? So, this is all really just my way of saying that I think it's actually, it's, both of those movies are worth watching, but especially the third one, so, and on, and on top of all that, it's really hard to fully appreciate the third one outside of the context of having seen Spider-Man 2, so I really would recommend that you that you see them both. I mean... Look, are those the greatest Spider-Man stories that have ever been told? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's my business to even say. But what I can say is that I enjoyed them as Spider-Man stories and as films, and I think that you know, there's, they've got a lot going for them, by and large. So, anyway. <clears throat> to get back into Prime's email, though, he writes, So, for the rest of this review, I'll talk about whatever comes to me. This should scare the planet. The first thing is my growing distaste for YouTube food reviewers that seem to think crass and lowbrow humor makes them worth watching. I'm looking at you, reckless eating and tasted. Their brand of humor is, frankly, toxic and also doubles as sandpaper. I mean, after a while, I just get tired of their inability to act with some maturity. I mean, does nearly every chance to say a disturbing comment have to be taken? And I'm a very live-and-let-live sort of guy, so that, that has to say a lot when it gets under my skin. Next up, we got you notice that nearly every internet personality is on Pytron. I'm really not even sure what you're trying to ask here, dude. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'm going to try to reread this. Next up, we got you notice that nearly every internet personality is on Pytron. Anyway, I'm just going to continue with the email. Not blaming them, but it seems like everyone found it the same week and now is trying to make it a source of money. 
More power to him on that. Third, Gundam. I think giant robots are cool. Though hard to find, any Let's uh, Plays of MS Saga. Again, I'm really not sure what you're trying to say here. Which is the lowest-selling PS2 Gundam game. It's a turn-based RPG that, when you play it, you find, it's, you find that it's decent. Not the greatest and most innovative RPG ever, but you can customize mobile suits. Change the colors, replace the parts, and that can lead to some interesting looks. And finally, we... Again, I think I'm having trouble parsing this. And finally, we have... I got to ask if... Wildstorm ever wanted their properties to be on the small screen in a cartoon is, holy shit, do they got stuff that just cannot be adapted to a kid's cartoon. And actually, this I can respond to a little bit, so I'm just going to put your email on pause here and say, I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but there, there was a Wildcats cartoon in, I don't know, I, I remember it premiering in the mid-90s, and honestly, I don't really remember it being all that good, but then again, we're talking about a comic book that I think might have been Jim Lee's first attempt at writing, and at least I think he wrote Wildcats, and so basically, I mean, the story on which that cartoon is based is already a complete fucking train wreck, so maybe saying that the cartoon is less of a train wreck or more of a train wreck, I mean... I don't know. almost seems like it's splitting hairs over nothing, you know? So, anyway, yeah. So, anyway, point is, yeah, I, I don't know if you knew that, but, yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was a cartoon show at one point. And there was also a Gen 13 animated movie. As a matter of fact, I've never actually seen it. I've heard sort of mixed things about it. I've heard some people say that it's, uh, it's a pretty adequate encapsulation of the Gen 13 miniseries. And then I've heard other people say that it's, absolute goat shit and it's got no redeeming value to it whatsoever so but being as i've never seen it it's really tough to say i just i just remember that time and i didn't exactly drink the image comics kool-aid especially not wildstorm but i remember thinking that you know that was a time when it felt like the comic book industry was finally advancing at least in some ways all right, now just hear me out before you jump down my throat on that, but think about it, you know. Um, Image Comics, especially in the 90s, changed comics. Up to then, comics were generally, at least on the DC side, comic adaptation media, films and TV shows and cartoon shows and all that stuff, tended to be either Batman or Superman. On the Marvel side of the, un- uh, of the equation, you had the Incredible Hulk TV show and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, it just kind of felt like that was... The 90s is when a lot of that stuff began to change. Not so much with... DC, you understand, because it seemed like w, like uh, Warner Brothers, they were still determined to only market Batman and Superman. But I guess the, more from the angle that we at least got a new Superman uh, animated show. The first one in nearly 10 years by that point. And we also had Batman, the animated series, going. And so in general, they were just telling... 
they were just being more um, sophisticated about it, I guess. At the same time, you know, maybe that Fantastic Four cartoon was great. Maybe it wasn't. But at least it was, it was Marvel pushing more than just... They were pushing more than just Spider-Man for once. You had the Fantastic Four. You had the, X, uh, the X-Men animated series. And, you know, a bunch of other stuff, too. I, I, wasn't, I think, wasn't there an, an Iron Man animated show or an, uh, an Avengers animated show? I swear to think there was something like that. But anyway. And also, as all of that stuff's going on, you had a Spawn cartoon. You know, Image Comics and everything, just to kind of tie that all back. You had uh, a Spawn cartoon on HBO. You had The Max on MTV. And I forget which channel Wildcats was on, but that was going. And there was also a Gen 13 animated movie. And honestly, you know what? You can make fun of those properties all you want now. But at least at the time, it really did kind of feel like comics were starting to advance a little bit. And they were starting to become more than just two or three or four uh, particular properties, you know? And... I can't speak for anybody else, but I kind of appreciated that, you know? And so, anyway. Now, what might things have turned out like if Stormwatch had ever been adapted into an animated show? Or, I don't know, any of the other Wildstorm or other uh, image properties? I mean, shit, I think there was a Youngblood cartoon on the table at one point. I don't think... I think there was a pilot for it, and then, like, the animation studio, there was some kind of shenanigans going on with them and Rob Liefeld, and I think, you know, one of them ended up suing the other, but the end result was that Youngblood animated show ended up just never premiering, and so there you go. <clears throat> but it just, it kind of felt like, again, we were starting to see not just more sophisticated types of cartoons, we were just starting to see just more of them overall, just raw numbers, you know? So I just, I've kind of got very fond memories of that time. So anyway, so that's that stuff though. So uh, to get back into Prime's email, he writes, well, that's enough for this time. Try to be more on topic next time. Signed, Fanboy Miss Prime. Well, Prime, yeah, you really weren't exactly on topic this time, but I... I don't especially see that as a uh, as a, a bad thing. So, so there's that. Now, I'm actually going to skip forward a, uh, a, a few entries here because this is I, I there's actually other feedback that came through in between this, but this seemed like the better thing to focus on right now. Uh, this is an email dated June the 10th. It was uh, sent by uh, Chris Franklin. The uh, subject line of it is sequel series and chris franklin writes hi magnus i've really enjoyed your defense of berated sequels thus far i won't say i agree that they all deserve too much defense but i think each film you've taken up for has redeemable elements to offer i remember seeing superman 3 in the theater with my mom and i enjoyed it in fact there are segments of that film which are some of my favorites amongst the entire reeve series the fight between evil Superman and Clark, the chemical fire, any scene with Reeve and Annette O'Toole, it's all great stuff. I also agree that this movie feels like a typical Carrie Bates or Marty Pascoe or Elliot S. Megan type of Bronze Age Superman tale. Superman helps 
a hapless schlub who gets involved in some mastermind's world domination scheme. This was nearly every third issue of Superman or action back in the 70s slash early 80s. <clears throat> I do think Pryor is a bit broad yet unfunny, but he's not unwatchable by any stretch of the imagination. My understanding is the writers and producers assumed he would ad-lib more, but he stayed close to their script, so who's to blame there? I'm just going to put your email on pause and say, first off, I did not know that. I didn't know that he was expected to ad-lib, and that might somewhat account for how weak some of his dialogue is. And I, it does kind of make you wonder, you know, are, how often movie scripts are written with the supposition that one of the leads is going to ad-lib most of his dialogue in the end anyway, and then if he doesn't, well, then what do you do, you know? The other angle, though, is that, you know, that fact that Superman 3 is pretty much any average Bronze Age comic, that seemed to have, cut, to have caught a lot of people right in the balls. I, it, it, it seems like they just didn't really think about that, you know? Like, that, that wasn't... I don't know. It's like that. Would, that's just not what they were thinking all those times they watched it. And so... I'd like to think I've, you know, at the very least, kind of broadened people's view and appreciation of Superman 3. That's what I'm hoping for. And so, so yeah, but I, a lot of people have actually said that exact same thing to me where, you know, they, they say I had never actually considered that before, but, you know, you're right. So, anyway, <clears throat> to get back into Chris's email, though, he uh, continues, Superman 4 is hard to defend. I always say it's hard is in the right place, but that's about it. The Donner Cut, I will say I like the tone of the Donner Cut overall. Lester under, uh, undercut the epicness of the, of the Great Metropolis battle with too many sight gags, a la the opener for Superman 3, but it isn't an, an unfinished film and you can't really compare the two. It's a curiosity. Nothing more, really. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know what, dude? I'm really not sure where fandom is on that. I mean, look, dude, I totally agree with that. Hell, I, I think I even made that same point in the, in the show. But it just kind of seems like, even now, it's almost like fans are kind of 50-50 on that, you know? Where they are willing to claim that the Donner Cut is better than Lester's cut, but anytime you bring up any of the Donner Cut's real weaknesses, they always say, well, it's unfinished. Well, motherfucker, which is it? Is it better than a finished movie, or is it not? Because if we're going to evaluate both of these things as finished films, that means that I get to say anything I want about the Richard Donner uh, cut of Superman 2. You don't get to play it both ways. Anyway, so, I don't know. I, I guess there's really no way to take a poll on something like this, but... It really does make me wonder. But anyway, get back into your point, though. Or your email, I should say. Get back into your email. I'll have to rewatch the Reeve Brando scenes to see what you're talking about, uh, Reeve's performance. I believe all of Brando's scenes were filmed first, so this scene may be some of the very earliest work Reeve did as the character. That may account for any shortcomings as well. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, you know what? I think that's a really good point, but... For those of you who don't know what he's talking about, by the way, basically what I said was 
Christopher Reeves uh, acting through all of the Superman movies was freaking top-notch. It was great. Except for those fortress scenes and Richard Donner's cut. And there was just... There was just something off about that. And so what I suggested was that... Basically, Donner filmed those things as sort of placeholders. They actually weren't intended to be seen by anybody. Basically, what he wanted to do was use the lag time between Superman the movie and Superman 2, basically to put together a cut of Superman 2 and figure out, you know, the, the rhythms of the movie and the pacing of it and everything, and just kind of get an idea of, you know, what needed to be fixed, maybe what needed to be reshot and all that stuff. So, <clears throat> uh, based on the fact that the, uh, the Christopher Reeve scenes in the movie just have kind of just strange lighting to them. It's kind of, it looks like it's just sort of rushed and sort of half-assed uh, lighting, along with the fact that his performance just really is kind of weak, especially compared to some of the other, uh, you know, his other performances in the films. I suggested that Richard Donner shot that stuff as a sort of placeholder. And what he wanted to do was come back later and then reshoot it. He just basically banged some stuff out so he'd have something to work with in the editing bay. But really, he wasn't intending to really use that stuff. Not really. So it's one of those things that he's never come clean about, and so we'll never know. But that's just my little conspiracy theory there. So just take that for whatever you think it's worth. I think there's a lot of merit to the idea, but I don't know. Maybe I'm alone on that one. So anyway, to get back into Chris's email, though, he writes... Enjoying your show, and we'll run your trailer on, on the Supermates podcast my wife and I host. If you're feeling froggy and would like to reciprocate it, I'd appreciate it. Signed, Chris Franklin. And, and to that I say, Chris, um, don't mind if I do, actually. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Chris, as he just said, is the co-host of the Supermates podcast. It's hosted by him and his wife. And you can find the home for it at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. Uh, Com, right? And actually, just as I'm taking a casual glance at this, I can, uh, I'm, actually, I'm reminded that I think Andy Leyland from Hey Kids Comics and the Fantasticast and the Palace of Glittering Delights, uh, he was on one of, one of their episodes uh, pretty recently, as I recall. And so, anyway, so if you guys, uh, you know, want to check that out, you certainly got my encouragement to do it. Uh, again, I'm going off memory here, but the way I remember things going is that he's released something like eight or nine episodes right now, and and I think by the time this episode comes out, there will be you know quite a few more episodes. But at least at the time is, that I record, he's released uh, like something like I don't know seven, eight, or nine or ten something like that episodes, and so there you go. And uh, anyway, it's a pretty fun show. I really enjoy it. And there's an, ep there's an episode he does about um, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne. Uh, and uh, honestly, that's a story. And I think there are other stories that they talked about, but that's the one that I, that's actually standing out for me right now. And I got to tell you, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne is one of the great Batman stories ever to be told by anybody. And I just, I've always 
really dug it, and I think this was actually Joe, some of Joe Staten's earliest work on Batman, or actually, I say on Batman, some of Joe Staten's earliest work, just ever. I think he was actually at the very beginning of his career right here, and so, um, there you go. It's, it, it's, I almost don't even want to talk too much about it, because I know that they talk a lot about it on their show, so... Actually, fuck it. Um, tell you what, just go over there. Supermates.blogspot.com. I think it's like episode 7. And they talk about a couple of other stories, too. Basically, this is sort of like an all-Earth-2 special. And I think um, that's where they talk about the autobiography of Bruce Wayne. So go ahead and check that out. It's, uh, it's, it's a really fun show, that episode in particular. And it's definitely worth listening to, especially since they talk so much about the autobiography of uh, Bruce Wayne. So it's pretty good stuff. So, uh, so there you go. And I think that's a, just about all the feedback I've got uh, for this time. So uh, for those of you listening, should you want to uh, get in touch with me, uh, you, can, you can email me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. And unless you say otherwise, all, all feedback will be read on mic. Um, but you don't have to just type it. If, you, if you'd like to actually record something and then send that over to me in an MP3 format and just attach it to the email, that's fine too. I'll be sure to play that. So, you know, just however you want to do it. And um, I think that's pretty much that. So, uh, coming for next week, I'm going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man, number 31 to 33. So, uh, come back for that. So, but I think that's pretty much it for this time. So, bye everybody. I'll see you next week. Night. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for our podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin. For the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. 
You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.